Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 55. The sound of gunfire from Operation Protea is dying down, and yet the SADF was already planning its next invasion of Angola. The intelligence gathered during Protea was going to lead to the second major 1981 operation, which was launched in November, targeting Ayondi initially, which is 120 kilometers inside Angola, and then onwards to Bambia and Chetiquera, much deeper inside Angola. But first, the Air Force was going to get busy. The aircraft used were extensive. 15 Impalas, 9 Pumas, 2 Super Frelons, and 10 Alouettes for Army support. Then 4 DC-3 Dakotas, 6 C-130s and C-160s, and 1 DC-4 as air transport and supply, and 9 Bosbox for navigation and reconnaissance support. 2 Mirage 3s would also be deployed for photo reconnaissance missions, 20 Mirage F-1s for air superiority, and three buccaneers as backup if enemy airfields needed to be bombed. The Mirages were going to face MiGs for the first time in direct air-to-air combat, and as you're going to hear, things didn't end well for one MiG in particular. Colonel Ollie Holmes was commanding officer of the Air Force contingent at Ashikati, and the idea was to set up a forward HQ position at Ayonde Airfield once it had been secured. 3-2 Battalion was sent in to protect the tactical headquarters and to patrol the supply routes for the main mechanized force, while Reiki teams led by Captain Willem Ratter were sent to keep an eye on Swapo positions. The assault force would be headed up by 61 Mechanized Battalion and include elements from 201 and 1 Parachute Battalion and 5 Reconnaissance Regiment. First, 3-2 had to reconnoiter Ayonde and establish what kind of enemy presence was in the town. On the 2nd of November, one of the Reiki teams made contact with a small Swapo section about 4 kilometers northwest of Mbundu, killing one in a short, sharp firefight. Two hours later, another Reiki team ran into a group of Swapo, killing eight and capturing four, who confirmed that a large concentration of their fighters were based around Bambi. They also revealed the exact location of Swapo's base between Kasinga and Techimuteti. There were seven targets in total believed to contain 2,000 planned fighters, that was Swapo's armed wing, with FAPLA in the vicinity. For example, reconnaissance showed that there was a brigade with heavy weapons, including tanks at Kaundo, two battalions at Kasinga, a battalion each at Kuvango and Techimuteti, and a Cuban regiment of 500 men backed up by armoured cars at Donga. While FAPLA and the Cubans were thought to be fairly static and unlikely to be a threat during Operation Daisy, it was likely that Swapo would retreat towards the Angolan forces to seek refuge. And what should have been a tactical warning, SADF military intelligence knew that 61 mechs movements were being telegraphed to Swapo as soon as the mobile battalion began to roll. The bush telegraph was working well for Swapo. Commandant Roland de Vries led the two mechanized infantry companies of 61 mech, as well as an armored car squadron, an anti-tank platoon, an 81mm mortar platoon and a 120mm mortar battery and he was highly aware of the Bush Telegraph. 201 Battalion, which was a motorized infantry unit, would join this mechanized attack, plus two companies of national servicemen, part of one parachute battalion, and three companies of three parachute battalion, who were the part-time citizen force men. On D-3, all forces moved into Angola to position themselves for the big push north. A helicopter administration area was established by 3-2 Battalion and two Pumas and two Alouette gunships were deployed. They then laid down strobe lights marking the position for use later and these were switched on at 2200 hours as a position marker for a C-130 Hercules that dropped eight members 
of a reconnaissance team by parachute. These men landed close to a suspected enemy HQ, and the Rekis had the base visual and monitored what was coming and going. They also identified a suitable drop zone for a large-scale paradrop on the morning of D-Day, set for 4th of November. Another 3-2 battalion reconnaissance team was sent to the helicopter administration ground, and they headed towards Ionda Airfield to keep an eye on things around that area. By last light on the 2nd of November, eight Alouettes and the same number of Pumas were positioned at the helicopter admin area inside Angola. But Swapo and Fapla were aware of these deployments. D-Day minus one, the 3rd of November, and Rata's recon team reported that Ayonde was unoccupied. Six Pumas flew in after sunrise at 0615, along with an Alouette gunship for protection as top cover and found the airfield indeed was deserted. The idea was to focus on the enemy base nearby once they determined Ayonde had been evacuated, and so they turned their attention to Mbundo, six kilometers to the southwest. By 1000 hours 45, the mobile air operations team had set up their center in one of Ayonde Airfield's abandoned buildings. The runway was in good shape, even the Dakota's DC-3s could land there. 201 Battalion, who were close by, ran into a contact with Swapo at 1400 hours 20, and two Alouette gunships were sent to lend fire support. 201 would take a few casualties in that skirmish. More about this in a moment. But an hour later, the first of many Dakota flights arrived at Ayonde, bringing in Brigadier Grunewald and his communications operations Comops team. A few minutes later, another Dakota landed carrying a tactical HQ medical team and their equipment. It was fortunate for the SADF that they had this airfield to themselves at this point, because the center of operations could shift into southern Angola instead of being based further south. This obviously saved time and money. The first of three pairs of Bosborg light planes landed just before 1600 hours, and they were going to remain at the airfield for the duration of Operation Daisy. It was all hustle and bustle right now, and Papla and Swapo were aware that something big was afoot. At 1600 hours, two Pumas were sent to pick up four wounded members of 201 hit during the firefight with Swapo, along with a prisoner of war who was slightly wounded and was going to provide more information about the composition of enemy forces. With 61 mech ready to roll into Angola heading deep into the countryside, there was a need for spares, and just before dark, another Dakota landed at Ayonde, carrying spare buffle tires. The last flight of the day into the airfield was one more DAC, the 4th, which was carrying paratroopers who were going to act as a tactical HQ mobile reserve. The logistics part of this op was going well, but as you're going to hear, the op itself did not. While the focus was on Ayonde, Bambi and Tetumuteti, to the west, the Air Force was dealing with a significant threat to the upcoming operation. If you remember our previous podcasts before Operation Pratia in August, Fapla's vital radar station at Kahama had been bombed and was unusable. The Angolans had not been idle since then and had reactivated Kahama's facility. This was then confirmed by four mirages which headed over southern Angola and triggered a radar signal. This had to be dealt with. A strike was planned on Kahama, but would only take place on the 5th of November, D-Day plus one. So far so good, you would say. Preparations unfolding neatly. Except you wouldn't, if you were Colonel Jan Breitenbach, commander of 44 Parachute Battalion, and Commandant Roland de Vries of 61 Mech. Both were unhappy. There were two main reasons. First, the plan was to shake up Swapo and attack them deep in Angola, but there were not enough SADF troops deployed to deal with a vast area of operations. Breitenbach put it best when he likened the operation to stopping a flood of water 
with a wire mesh. Swapper would just fan out, and how could the paratroopers deal with this on such a broad front? They were being used as stopper groups, but should really be used as a fire force. 61 Mex de Fries was unhappy, and he brought up the issue of Swapper's intelligence units being proactive. His large mobile column would trigger the intelligence bush telegraph. Both Breitenbach and de Vries had enough experience to know by now what they were talking about. Unfortunately, the top brass appeared convinced of their own brilliance and ignored these warnings. The main attack was going to be carried out by 61 Mech, and then all forces would be busy for 17 days inside Angola as counterinsurgency ops were conducted. Afterwards, 201 Battalion, along with 3-2, would cover the paratroopers and 61 Mech's withdrawal. Breitenbach wanted a small group of attackers to undertake his favourite form of warfare, which he called to find them, fix them and finish them, rather than the noisy, large, mechanised army that was going to roar into Angola. While the recon teams had collected fairly accurate information, they were effective only around specific areas assigned for reconnaissance. The rest of the intelligence about this op was based on assumptions about where the enemy were, which is a fallible approach. Sector 1-0 headquarters and Army Chief Yanni Geldenhuis were both confident, despite the holes in SADF knowledge, things would go well, but he was uneasy. Geldenhuis' public-facing attitude was that it was worth taking a chance, although they didn't have all the facts. And so by the 1st of November, 61 Mech and the paratroopers began mobilising. And immediately, Swapo's bush telegraph went into top gear. The SADF plan was to rush north once across the Katlan, but as anyone knows by now, no one rushes through southern Angola unless you're airborne. It was rainy season, so where the rattles could usually handle thickish sand, now they were snarled by the undergrowth. It was so thick that the front wheels of these 18.5-ton behemoths would lift off the ground while traversing the off-road routes. The Fries ploughed onwards, literally, despite these odds. One of the first incidents that almost led to a death involved a three-metre-long mamba, that dropped into the rattle of Major Kurs Liebenbach. He ended up yelling and shouting, and the reptile found its way out of a rattle door to disappear into the Angolan bush. Above the mobile forces, the air support and drop was beginning. After the flights into Ayonde, the main air activity started on 0300 hours on November 4th, when six C-130s and C-160s took off from Grootfontein with three companies of paratroopers. Their DZ, or drop zone, was on map reference X-ray Papa 47095, and that was where the strobe lights had been set up, as you heard earlier. Things can go wrong very quickly, and in this case they did. Later, the pilot said the DZ strobes were not switched on when the C-130s and C-160s arrived overhead, and the paratroopers were dropped kilometres away from their position, but the reckies say they did their job. After looking at the various versions of this event, it appears that the fires burning at the enemy base caused confusion and that the reckies were right, their strobes were on. But the reality was, a few hundred parabats were now far west of their target. Breitenbach was seething, not for the first time, he regarded the Air Force as a bunch of cowboys as his poor parabats had to waste their energy slogging through the bush instead of fighting. I've spoken to a few recently who said that the effect of a route march on strike force operations was debilitating to the extreme in that environment. Meanwhile, 61 Mech was bundu bashing heading for Bambi and Chitaquera. Everything was going smoothly after the initial difficulties. By early morning of the 4th of November, De Vries had managed to make up time and they stormed these two bases. 61 Mech overran them almost immediately because they were empty. 
The Rekis said afterwards that they could hear 61 Mech coming through the bush for three hours. There was so much noise in the quiet African early morning. Even if Swapo's bush telegraph had failed, they'd still have had more than enough time to scamper to safety with such a cacophony going on. Swapo also heard the C-130s and C-160s fly past carrying the paravat and figured out that this was not a normal morning and breakfast could wait despite the fires already burning for the porridge. In fact, the Rekis in their hideouts spotted Swapo leave these bases and sent an urgent message to Comops, but the operation was too far gone and the Fries didn't get the news. 3-2 Battalion had also learned something that morning. They'd captured a plan officer's clerk who was talkative. He explained that Swapo's standard operating procedure had been updated. When they picked up mechanized SADF units on the move at the border, their teams were informed almost immediately. Plan commanders had guessed correctly where 61 mech were going and ordered the evacuation of Bambi and Chittaquera. So the air attack was going to drop thousands of dollars of ordinances on an empty base. While the Bosbox took off at dawn as navigational guides and artillery spotters for 61 Mech, 201 and 32 battalions, the next wave of aircraft dropped their bombs very accurately by all accounts, except Swapo was no longer at the positions. At 0815, three Buccaneers launched their first bombing run on Swapo HQ with a low-level attack, each dropping a stick of eight 460-kilogram bombs flying north to south. A temperature inversion had trapped the smoke from the fires as Swapo prepared their breakfast a little earlier before they had left in a hurry, and these fires were still crackling. A minute after the Buccaneers, four Mirage F1AZs dived onto the target from the north, letting loose with four sticks of bombs. There was still no anti-aircraft fire. That was going to change. The last Mirage out of the bombing run spotted an SA-7 missile trail. He warned the crews of three incoming Mirage F1CZs who were beginning their dive onto the target. Swapo positions around the bases were active, and these AA crews began to fire back. The Air Force then targeted these anti-aircraft positions, changing their runs, with another four Mirages heading for what they thought were 23mm guns peppering the sky at 10,000 feet. These Swapo gunners had not left the building. They were also aiming at the Bosbox, so eventually the Air Force resorted to the slower Impala ground attack aircraft, and despite four hours of attacks, Swapo's anti-aircraft fire persisted. On the ground, 61 mech eventually rolled through the entire base area, but Swapo was long gone. They'd headed north, leaving the mechanized column to report no resistance whatsoever. For an expensive and powerful operation, this was frustrating. The aim was to weaken Swapo by repeatedly targeting their training, logistics and operations bases and killing them. All this South African firepower trundling around the bush was costing the taxpayer a fortune and failing in its main objective. 61 mechs swept the area around Chitiquera, then turned south towards Bambi. The anger was building up amongst the commanding officers. They'd travelled for two days to deal Swapo a severe blow, but all that had happened was that they'd been clearing booby traps and empty positions. Around Bambi, there were a significant number of trenches and old Swapo bases, and the enemy had left this area some time before, perhaps weeks. Swapo also had left a few surprises for the SADF. Three rattles were damaged in mine blasts, and spare axles had to be flown in with super frelins. That night, a small group of Swapo walked into 61 Mech's vehicle lager from the direction of Tichimateti to the northwest. The South Africans opened fire using what they called their firebelt action, 
where all vehicles fired their guns in one direction at the same time. Three Swapper were killed. Overnight, Breitenbach and de Vries were conducting what you could call a told-you-so briefing. Both the parachute and mechanized force had been misused, and the two commanders were blunt in their assessment. Both also realized that the forces had been deployed back to front. It should have been the parachutists attacking the isolated bases far inland, and the mechanized force who should have been deployed as the stopper group. As Swapo retreated, the parachutists on foot were somehow supposed to tighten a net around them, pretty much an impossible feat in the vast Angolan flatlands. The mobile force would have been better placed to cut off Swapo's retreat, and the helicopter gunships and medium artillery would have been more effective instead of the 120mm mortars. For the next two weeks, the South Africans swept the area in search of Swapo, but without success. There were small firefights, but the big battles they had hoped for were not to be. By the 18th of November 1981, they were back at base in southwest Africa, and Yanni Heldenhuis formally announced that Operation Daisy was one of the least successful operations conducted thus far in the border war. It was demotivating. After all the success of Protea, this was a failure and Staff Officer morale was flat. But there was one incident that rippled across the region which took place on November 6th, and this involved a mirage and a MiG. After years of warfare, finally the Angolan Air Force decided it was going to become aggressive. Increased MiG activity had been reported between the 4th and 5th of November. This led to a stiff air defense program being initiated by the South Africans at Ondangwa. Mirage F-1CZs armed with missiles and 30mm cannon were on cockpit standby from first light. At 0700 on the 6th, radar flight controllers at Dayton, as it was called, detected two fast-moving tracks heading towards the southwest African border from Lubango in the direction of Quitevi. The radar flight controller scrambled two mirages to intercept what were obviously MiGs. Previously, the MiGs had retired when the mirages scrambled and crossed the border, but the South Africans had a trick up their sleeve this time. They used extreme low-level penetration up the Kuneni River, staying below Angolan radar, then pitched up from 50 feet to 25,000 feet in 30 seconds. Enemy radar still appeared to miss their move. Leading the flight was Major Johann Rankin, with Lieutenant Johann Duplessis as his wingman. The two Johans were graduates of 85 Advanced Fighter School at Petersburg, and they were highly trained in interception techniques and what was known as ACM, Air Combat Maneuvering, or what you and I would call an old-fashioned dogfight. Duplessis spotted two MiG-21s about four nautical miles away on the port beam. They appeared to be at the same altitude. It was now or never. The South Africans jettisoned their drop tanks and turned hard left, bringing the mirages into line behind the unsuspecting MiG-21s. The two enemy aircraft were flying about 1,000 meters apart, with the number 2 MiG around 30 degrees behind the leader. They were also flying directly into the sun, which meant the mirages could not fire their Matra 550 heat-seeking missiles. Rankin closed in on the trailing MiG and fired a burst from his 30mm cannon from around 300 meters behind the enemy aircraft. A puff of smoke burst out of the plane and fuel appeared to begin leaking from its fuselage. Both MiGs suddenly entered a descending left-hand turn and jettisoned their own drop tanks. Despite the move, both were now in a good position for a missile shot because they had vectored away from the sun. Rankin and the lead MiG began a dance of death in the sky, with the MiG managing to turn onto his tail, but it didn't fire its missile. Perhaps it experienced a malfunction. Rankin continued turning tightly and then headed towards the second MiG, telling Duplessis to go after the leader. At that moment, 
The second MiG committed what is regarded as a cardinal sin of aerial combat and reversed his turn and Rankin's mirage closed quickly on the slowing Russian plane. Rankin opened fire with his 30mm cannon once more and the MiG exploded, showering the mirage with debris and breaking into two pieces behind the cockpit. As the bits of MiG spiralled towards the Angolan felt, the pilot ejected. The lead MiG now executed an extreme manoeuvre that pushed the capabilities of both sets of pilots and planes. It's called a high-speed spiral dive that loaded over 9 Gs and Duplessis could not get his missiles to fire because the forces on the planes were just too high. The Matra 550 missile had reached its limits again. This bit of expert flying saved the MiG pilot's life and he got away while the Mirages were forced to turn back to the southwest African border. By the time the two Johans made it back to Andangwa, Duplessis and Rankin were being fated as heroes. The MiG-21 was the first aircraft shot down by the South African Air Force since the Korean War. The pilots had a few drinks to celebrate that night, but the boffins were concerned. The Matra 550 missiles had malfunctioned, and the South Africans were forced to shoot down an advanced enemy fighter plane with cannon like it was 1952 all over again. That had to be sorted out and quickly, or the next dogfight may see mirages the victims of the MiGs. Still, this was an historic moment in the annals of this border war. Next episode, we'll assess the overall situation by the end of 1981. Please head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. And also, please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the visibility of the series. And you can direct message me. I'm on Twitter. And my handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.